Welcome to Literary Fiction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. We are sitting in my living room recording, which is a little different from the studio, but I'm really loving it. It's very comfortable. Our legs are touching. Oh my god. We're gosh. both on the couch. Mm-hmm. You're gonna make a move on me later. <laughs> and actually, appropriately, today our theme is the mundane, the quotidian, the everyday, the ordinary things in literature, and how writers from George Eliot to Elizabeth Strout have made them extraordinary. As usual, our theme is inspired by our guest, and this month we'll be playing a recording of an interview Carrie did without me with the Norwegian author Carl Ove Nausgaard a couple of weeks ago at Waterstones Tottenham Court Road. Um, you were in Ireland. So I know, I know, I know. It was just jazzing you. Um, Nausgaard is best known for his epic My Struggle series, but he was in town to talk about his new book, Autumn, which is the first in a quartet of titles based around the seasons. In Autumn, he describes his world from chewing gum to toilet bowls to frogs to his unborn daughter. So in addition to playing the interview, we, as usual, will be talking about our theme more generally and also giving book recommendations. So stay tuned. So now here is Carl Ovenausgaard. I asked him to start with a reading from Autumn, and he's reading the full text of the section called Chewing Gum. Chewing gum usually comes in two forms, either as a small pillow-shaped pellets or as flat oblong sticks. The pellets have a fairly hard, smooth, enamel-like external layer, a kind of shell which makes a crunching sound when the teeth are pressed through it, and a softer gum center which releases its strong taste as soon as the teeth reach it, not unlike the way a pharmaceutical capsule functions. These two different consistencies change rapidly once one begins to chew. In the first few seconds, a porridge-like mass is formed before what we think of as the real essence of gum emerge, firm and chewy, smooth and elastic. Chewing gum's second shape, flat oblong stick, looks rather like a wide ribbon of fresh pasta and its texture is very different from that of a pellet, since it lacks the candy shell and is therefore softer, nor does it have a gum center where the taste is concentrated. What happens is that the stick sort of skips both the capsule face when the taste spurts into the surrounding mass and the porridge face and goes straight to the intrinsic state of chewing gum. From a purely physiological perspective, chewing something without swallowing is pointless. So is smoking, but when one smokes, stimulating and addictive substances are released, which explains why filigrown adults suck on cigarettes. Chewing gum does not produce any such effect, and is perhaps most closely related to the dummies that infants suck on, where they reflex that this sets off first tricks the body into believing that it is working to get itself some food, then takes over entirely and turns sucking on something into an activity valuable in and of itself. It is obvious then that there is something infantile about chewing gum. I spent so much time by myself that it didn't even cross my mind when last week I drove over to a small fishing town about 20 kilometers away to visit a German arts editor who lives there a few months of the year. I always chew gum while I'm writing and while I'm driving, and not just one or two of the little pellets, but whole packets at a time. By the time I parked the car outside the old captain's house where the editor stayed, I had a huge wad of gum in my mouth. Not until I rang the bell and he opened the door did I remember it. I let it lie on one side of my mouth and tried hard not to chew on it while he showed me around the house. It was very beautiful, renovated and furnished in the modernist style, not a single object awry. I kept looking for a place to throw away the gum, but there wasn't one. We sat down, he served coffee, I discreetly removed the gum from my mouth and hid it in the palm of my hand. My index finger and thumb around the handle of the antique thin porcelain coffee cup, the other three fingers curled around the gum. 
We talked about literature. He told me about the two books he was working on. The gum no longer adhered only lightly to my skin. The protective layer of saliva was gone, so now it was stuck. I thought he would probably shake my hand when I took my leave of him and plucked up my courage. Do you have anywhere I can put this? I asked finally. The gum, he said. His facial expression and whole bearing in the second that followed, expressing partly surprise, partly reproof, maybe also contempt, is still engraved in my mind. Gum, he said. Then the moment had passed, and the wet of gum was now the most natural thing in the world. He tore off a piece of paper and handed it to me. There is a waste paper basket beside a writing desk, he said. Almost any other failing would have been met with indulgence. For I was there in my capacity as an author, therefore artist, therefore someone who could cut off his own air, someone who could spew out obscenities, someone who could be drunk, maybe even shoot up some heroin in his bathroom. For if substance abuse is foolish and infantile, it is also magnificent, at least in an artist whose spirit rebels against conformity. Chewing gum was only transgressive when we were seven, eight years old, when chewing a small piece of gum with your mouth open was cool, and having your mouth full gave you a certain status. I used to save mine, I remember. One wad of gum could last for several weeks back then. The taste was gone after a few hours, but not the texture. That is no longer the case. Since everything nowadays is sugar-free, the taste disappears after only a few minutes, and the consistency becomes loose and grainy, having lost its elastic quality entirely. With one exception, juicy fruit. <laughs> in all the places I have lived and written, in Volda and Bergen, in Stockholm and Malmö, I knew which shops stocked juicy fruit. There were fewer and fewer of them, and I began to hoard the yellow packets. Even now, my writing desk is always full of old wads of gum, which, with their grey colour, hemispherical shape, and many little indentions, resemble shrunken brains. I can't write without them, and I don't discard them until the grainy face sets in. Of the fortunate fact that I'm not alone in suffering from this vice, unworthy in all its insignificance, I am reminded every time I'm in town, where pavements and squares outside the main public buildings are covered in white spots, distributed as randomly as the stars in the sky. And in the darkness, lit up by street lamps, and shimmering faintly against the black asphalt, what the gum-flecked pavements most resemble is indeed a starry sky. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to come back to gum specifically later, but I thought we could start just by talking about the form and the structure of autumn and how you decided to structure it in the way you did, which is a series of letters to your unborn daughter and then texts about different things in the world. Um, yeah, it, it'll come about kind of incidentally, I think. We were expecting a baby and I somehow started to write to her, you know, like a private letter or a diary like, this is us, this is your mother, this is your father, this is your siblings, this is what we're doing today. And I wrote like 150 pages and I intended it to be a present for her when she was 18, you know. And at the same time, um, I was asked by a magazine to write short texts uh, on the back of the magazine. It was an American magazine and I started to do that. And then the editor was, was uh, he resigned and there was nothing to it. But I had found a form, you know. It's like one thing, one page. Um, and I just kept writing. And there is also a you know, backstory to this, because when I was um, 
like 20 or something. There was a translation to Norwegian by a French poet called Francis Ponge. Uh, and it absolutely blew my mind because it was a book without any persons, without any characters. It's only things, you know. Uh, and he's kind of giving, not giving them a voice, but describing them for inside, so to speak. And then I read a novel by another author called to Eric Lund with the snow, not a single person in it. It's just a novel and it's about things. And I wanted to do that myself, so I somehow I had this idea of making an encyclopedia of the world. So I sat down, I, I think I wrote down like 200 words, uh, and I started to write, and there was nothing to say. There was nothing, I had nothing to say, you know, I, I then I was 28, and it was a project I had, and I couldn't, couldn't say anything about the world. I remember sitting there writing about lungs, and I couldn't. And then this kind of turned up, um, and I could write, and I and I was that was a pleasure in itself, you know, picking up that old project, and giving not a voice to the world, but describing it, uh, lifting it up, looking at it, uh, sequencing it, and see what happens, you know. And so many things happens when you do that that you are not aware of. So so it was it was just really. Yeah, was I did it because I could, you know, that mm -hmm. was the reason. Do you think one of the reasons you could finally do it was because you were writing for your daughter and not just for yourself? Yeah, that part was obviously because of that. Uh, the other part was uh, the experience from, from my struggle. And it was such a relief because my struggle is so introvert, it's always looking inwards. And now I could, you know, lift the gaze and look out and... and, and I'm describing still things very close to me, like maybe 10 meters away, but it still feels very different and, and, um, and very joyful. And I also wondered, you know, is it possible to do that? I love paintings. I love also, you know, figural paintings of the world. And it's a mystery to me why I'm so attached to it and, and, and why it gives me so much, because it's only the world, things and objects in the world. And I wondered, is it possible to write like that without investing in our psychology or relations? Or it is still in there, but somehow, what is a thing? What is the value in a thing? What do we add to the values? And, and, and how, you know, all those kind of things. And I felt like, in the end, that the world is completely constructed, you know? There are so many things we, we add to everything we see. And I started the day by you know, picking an object and and when it started, there was nothing to say. I mean, a toothbrush, you know, you can look at it, what, what is it to say? And then I started to write and it was like layer upon layer upon layer with meaning, you know, mm. that was attached to it. One of the things that this made me think about was the movement, the sort of minor movement um, in British poetry called Martianism with Craig Rain and other writers like that and making the making the familiar strange again. And I felt that part of this project made me think about objects in their strangeness, something that I see every day and don't investigate in the forensic way that you do in this book. Yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, it's like the most boring place and the most, you know, is, is where you are, you know everything, you are familiar with everything and then you stop seeing it, you know? And that's what painters do somehow. They 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 see it, you know, how how it really is under real relations to, to other things. Um, and that was what I tried to do. And to do it regardless of its status, you know. So I write with this great love and affection, attention to vomit, as I do to, you know, the concept of love or my daughter's face or, or whatever. Or a toilet bowl. And a toilet bowl, yeah. <laughs> That was great to write about, yeah. you know. <laughs> I love that. I'd, because you make the point that a toilet bowl is beautiful, but we don't think of it as beautiful. Exactly. It just disappears. We don't see it. It has a function, and then we don't see it, you know. And yeah. One of, the, um, uh, one of the things you said before was that we are sort of inseparable from the world. The way we see the world is, is inevitably bound up in our own experience and memories. And, and that was one thing that, I think comes through in these texts is that no matter what you're talking about, you sort of end up talking about 
your memories of this thing or your personal experience with it. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. How do you think that the way we see the world is always a product of what we know and what we can remember and what we can recall? Yeah, this... <laughs> um, I just... Uh, read a book about you know the brain and how the brain works and I'm very interested in that and kind of the mechanical side of of the brain and of, of humanity and in that book it was stated that when you see something you know the it, it flows something in into your brain and back to your center but it goes much more information the other way you know so it's like you we, we see what we have seen we see what we know and the actual act of seeing is more like a correction you know and I and I think I always have suspected that it is like that and, and uh, I've got it confirmed you know <laughs> <laughs> in that book but I think it is I think it really is like that yeah. um, so you you talked a little bit about when you first had this idea where you just wrote a lot of words down on a page um, was that list something that you returned to when you were writing at this time? And if it wasn't, how did you decide out of the multitude of things that you could write about what, what you ended up writing about? Um, I have this, I have always rules when I'm writing. So this, this time the rules was, you know, one object, one text in one sitting. So most, the hardest work was to pick an object so I had these lists with things that I wanted to write about it was very long lists and, and many of them were seasonal connected but, but anyway and then I when I was deciding one word I was just writing it uh, and it was like an investigation into something I never knew where the text would go you know. it was it is writing is very much about not knowing where you're going and, and discovering something while you're writing and if it's there, you know, beforehand, then it's useless to me. It must come in the process. Exactly because we know so much about the world and it makes us not see the world. So knowledge is to me somehow, um, yeah, overrated. Or I at least when you're, when you're writing. Was there anything that you really wanted to write about that you just couldn't write? No, but it was something I had to push myself to do because I wanted, I wanted you know, the whole range of the world to be present. I find everything, you know, relating to sexuality very different to write about. Uh, and it was in this time too, but I have to force myself to look at it in exactly the same way, you know. Give it as much at attention and, and do it anyway. And that was kind of important to me try to have the whole range of, of um, you know, of the world and of the experience of the world. Um, and these are four books. The first two books are texts. And then the third book is actually a novel uh, because the daughter then is born. Uh, and so it's a day in, in our life from morning till evening. And that's it. The thought was that all the objects, all the things that is described should be in motion there. You don't see them, but, but they are there. And then the last book is Summer, which is kind of overthrown with everything, you know, it's a diary, it's text, it's letters, it's all kind of things, because I wanted it to remind of a summer, you know, mm. when it is full and rich and, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the seasons, because, of course, that's the, the conceit behind this quartet. Um, have you... But for me, all of your books, um, including this and, and my struggle before it and the novels, are very wrapped up with place um, and also a sort of feeling for the landscape, the way that landscape infuses thought. And I wonder if that was on your mind, especially here when you were thinking about the seasons. Yeah, very much. And it's, you know, the, the area that this book takes place is very small. It's, it basically is my garden and, my and the surroundings. Uh, and that is the changes throughout the year that it's register, you know. And it is, um, you know, it's the feeling that this is where life is and this is where the big questions are, you know. Uh, but I couldn't write about big questions at all. Uh, in 
differently than doing this regularly. So what's what's you know what, what's around me, and that's the same logic that my struggle has. Mm. Uh, and I'm also interested in you know identity and and why we become the way we are. So all those questions are attached to being born in a specific country at a specific time, having these specific experiences. You know, uh, this is a bit different, but it still is. This is very much here and now. You know what's going on here, what's going on now, throughout, throughout the year. And yet seasons are so cyclical. I always think of yeah. the beginning of seasons as that cusp of a time, sort of like what we're in now, as a really nostalgic time, um, because you're, of course, reminded of those changes throughout time. And I, I felt that in this book, the sort of universality of the seasons happening every single year, but also the, the moment that you were living in in that one particular text. Yeah, very much so, and and it's also very much about you know losing w what you are losing through memories, of course. So, but it's yeah, fascinating writing about something that it is present, and you can evoke that present, and everything is exceptionally, you know, layered and exceptionally complicated somehow. Um, but I wanted it to be very simple at the same time, so mm. that's why the these simple objects. And you you talked about it as a bit of a relief after writing my struggle. I mean, this is this is as brief as that is long in many ways. I mean, I I, I was saying to you before I read it in chunks before I went to bed, um, and it didn't take me very long to read. Um, and I wonder if that was true, and if you enjoyed looking outwardly and writing briefly after having this intensive thing that you wrote beforehand. Yeah, I absolutely loved it, doing it. And it is very a very joyful book, too. Uh, it is less joyful in autumn and winter. It's kind of darker, but then it becomes more in spring. And <laughs> but it is kind of a celebration of, of just being, you know, being here and now. Very much so. Um. And you, you have a... Um, you say at the beginning of the book, you describe the green foliage of a tree against a red brick farm building. And you say that what these colors contain is one of the reasons that you're a writer, although you you can't quite grasp it. You're always reaching for that. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about how this book confronts that problem in some way. What what did you feel about this form that excited you about grasping that, that question? Mm, that's, um, that's a difficult question. Um, because it's very abstract with the colors. It is the color red and the color green. Uh, but it is blood and, and you know, leaves. Uh, and it's life and death. And it's all those kind of things just in those two colors. And what I wanted to do was see if it was possible to transfer the logic of a painting, which you watch you know, for a minute or for two. And then you in the next one, it's like you take it in, in, in once. You can't do that in writing, but you can, you can you know, so it's much more that I wanted, so you know, one single glaze at something. Um, but mm. it's not poetry either, because it's essayistic parts, it's private, you know, uh, about my children and so on, and it's many different things, but that was what I wanted in, in the form. And in, in painting, I think it is, you have the forms, that is, you know, the restrictions and the rules, and then you have the colors, which is, endless. I mean, if you see it blue, it never stops. It is like it has, has it is kind of an, an infinity to it, which makes art so extremely compelling and intriguing and, and hypnotic. And that is the feeling I'm looking for when I'm reading and, um, and when I'm writing, because I recognize it from my own life, you know. Somehow that, yeah, it is the feeling of being alive uh, that I need restrictions to get to. And I think you can, normally I would have written like 200 pages and then you can reach a point where something is happening. Here the challenge was that you don't, you just have the very short movement, you know, and but it still is a movement and it still is almost like a novel, very, very short novel. Um, yeah. yeah, and you, d you talk about a novel, I do think there's a narrative structure to a lot of the pieces, uh, especially one of the things I loved about my struggle is is the way there are sort of stories within stories within stories and 
you get that in miniature here where one thing leads to another which is inside of another thing um, and I wonder how how much you had to construct that or how much it just came naturally to jump in that way it's nothing is constructed it's just uh, I've just sat down and wrote what you're reading <laughs> <laughs> and there is no editing nothing and I everything I wrote is in the book so it's like that's it you know but I am fascinated by that and I have a I have a, um, a neighbor I live in Sweden, south of Sweden, in, in uh, a village, and it's 400, 400 people there. And there's a neighbor that moved in from London, and he's a photographer, and he's, um, he's absolutely brilliant. His name is Stephen Gill, and, and we are talking a lot about, you know, exactly the form and, and, and how to... And he has this... Um, we live in a completely... We know everything we see, and we go there every day, and he's photographer his his uh, art is representing something completely different and it's completely outside of our reach but it is there it's kind of a miniature nature world that he he captures you know as a world inside a world and now he was talking about photographing a fish bringing up every you know single object in it and in it and in it and in it and if you look at the world it's that's how it is you know mm. it's like the fractal thinking from the 80s you know there's there's a pattern, and if you go inside a pattern, it's the same pattern, and you can go down and down and down, more and more, you know, down there. And I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by those kind of things that we don't really know how big things are, how small they are, you know. It's, um, yeah. Mm. And you've been talking a lot about art and painting and photography, and of course, um, and that that's a concern of, of your other books as well, but I was really interested that you have, that, that this book is illustrated, and I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about the illustrations and why you wanted them included and, and how you commissioned them. Yeah. This is, um, this is by Vanessa Baird. She's a Norwegian painter. Uh, I knew since this was so visual to me and this was such a... Um, um, strongly associated with painting with me. I wanted someone else to give a view on autumn and on the seasons. Uh, there should be no connections. I just, you know, contacted someone and asked them and they should do their own thing and that should be in the book to give a completely different perspective. So this is Vanessa Baird. Uh, and then this winter is Lars Lerin, a Swedish, absolutely fantastic uh, watercolor painter. And the third is, is uh, Anna Bjerga, a Swedish painter and the fourth is uh, the only one that probably is known here is Anselm Kiefer mm. uh, he, he painted some uh, fantastically beautiful uh, watercolors of, of summer and of wheat fields and of ecstasy and a lot of a lot of things and I think that brings in something uh, uh, yeah I just love the fact that these artworks are in the books and they are not related to it it's not like the people read the texts it's completely freely somehow and that makes them into something different to me it's not it's it's uh, and it removes it a bit from me too which I love now yeah one one of the things that I thought about Vanessa Baird's um, work was it's very different from if you had to translate your text into art which I don't think you ever could it's very different um, it's not, you know, you're sort of known for forensic exacting prose and her art is quite free form, it's quite figurative. Um, there are shapes, but sometimes you don't know what they are. Um, and it, it, uh, it, I think it, for me, it made me think a lot more about what the, the work that the text was doing as well um, and the different ways that we can express these kinds of feelings and, and yeah. emotions. I do envy painters a lot because they don't have to go, you know, around through reason, through thinking, they could go directly to what art really is, you know. In writing you have to, you have to deal with uh, reflection and, and, and abstract language to get there, you know. But for me the whole point is to, to touch and to, uh, that there should be something non-verbal there, you know. That's, that's the color green and, and, and red we were talking about. And they do those those images, and, and it should be a contrast to to the texts, you know. 
but somehow you could see the longing in the texts for coming there, you know, we can't come there, but we want to go there. And it's like, it's a completely different way of representing the world. And I, and I think these paintings somehow relate to that, um, that longing. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about parenting because um, <laughs> I guess we have to. Um, <laughs> well, but but the conceit of this book is that you're writing to your unborn daughter, yeah. and you've written that the My Struggle series is is a lot about parenting. So, how do you see this book in comparison to that series in terms of what you're trying to say about being a father? Yeah, but in this, this book, I'm not trying to say anything about being a father at all. It's the Children comes in and out of the texts completely coincidental because they are there, you know. Um, but it's no, it's not. It's, it's not about that at all. But don't you think that by writing to your child, it is sort of about? I mean, that you have a certain vision that you want to show her of the world, um, and so there is an element of parenting here. I mean, the whole thing oh yeah, sort of no springs out yeah. from your yeah, relationship with her. In Sweden, the critic said, you know, Knausko's mansplaining the world <laughs> to, his <laughs> to his unborn daughter. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, uh, it is not about parenting. It is not, <laughs> about, it is not about instructing anything. Yeah. It is, uh, I think it was, I wrote it to express, you know, the joy of expecting a new, you know, a new person. Mm -hmm. And what I say to her in the first letter is that, of course, you will have your own experience. Of course, you will see the world in, in your own terms. But by doing this um, to you, my world is, you know, meaningful and that, that is very much what the book is about. Mm. It's not to her in that sense. Mm. But it is a celebration of life and it is a celebration of you know being somehow. Do you want her to read this? Yeah, I do. Wha I don't want her to read my struggle, but this <laughs> she, could, <laughs> she could read. What age do you think she'd be ready to read it? Does it matter? Doesn't matter, not really. I don't know. Because I mean, one of the things I liked about it is it was sort of... Um, it was the opposite of talking down to children. Um, it was sort of just telling them, you know, it, it didn't matter what you were talking about, whether it was vomit or sexuality, um, th it, there was nothing sanitized about it. No. And I liked that conceit that even before somebody's born, the sort of most sacred time in culture, yeah. um, you still were ready to expose them to everything. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, yeah and, and, and that's important, an important, important point that I, that I want everything to be open and in the open, you know. Uh, so when it comes to object, it is obvious you can do that. Uh, um, but also in 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 um, in the third book where she is born, uh, it is also completely open. But then it's open about uh, very difficult things that has to do with you know depression and and. And but I, I wanted to have the same approach there. You know, this happens in the life, and this is part of life, and and we have to face it. You know, as we face the things, as we face, you know, everything I'm writing about, and um, and I believe very strongly in that. Not in life, I think, but in in art, and and and, and especially in this case, since this book was to her, and since it was so extremely difficult, that. You know, it's almost part of the deal that I'm also writing about the difficulties. Mm. And there are a number of moments, uh, you, you know, shame, I'm sure you've been asked about a lot, but it's something that comes up a lot in my struggle, and it comes up here too. You're very open about um, an episode, for instance, where you pissed your pants as a young boy. Um, and there's a, a funny element to that, just like in, in the gum chapter, your humiliation is sort of there on a plate for us to to laugh at, but it's also, I mean, it is humiliating and, and shameful. And I, I wonder if writing My Struggle has made you feel any differently about that particular emotion. No, it had made it much easier to write about it. Uh, it was very hard to write about in the beginning, uh, very hard. Uh, but that also makes it 
you know, worth something if you invest, if it is hard, you invest something and, and, and you will see that on, on page. Um, and it was easier and easier to do it. Uh, also partly because I eliminate the audience and I eliminate the readers when I'm writing and I don't think of them and then it's possible to do. So then the shameful moment comes when you s give it to someone and they are reading. Um, but in my private life it's exactly the same. It's like my struggle wasn't helping in any way about anything when it comes to those things at all. No. Mm. So it wasn't cathartic? No, it was... Uh <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. Um, you, n you never write to help yourself. You write to make something, you know, uh, a, a book that hasn't been there before and now it's out in the world and, and that's the reason you do it. I, if I helped myself, I would never have written about those things because... No, and I don't really understand why it, it should help, you know, to name things or to say what it is and to identify it. I think it goes much deeper than that when we're talking about shame and guilt and mm -hmm. those kind of things. So I was always interested in writing books and just being kind of careless about myself as a raw material and to see where it, it, it led me, you know. You've said before that you don't really think about the reader when you're writing. Has that changed as you're more conscious of the sort of global audience for what you're writing? Or is that still something you just can't even acknowledge to make something? I, mm, when I started to write, I had all these notions and, and uh, ideas and about what I was writing and it was very thought through and it was very also very self-critical and I kind of crippled myself in that and when somehow I had a breakthrough with my first novel I was free you know I was free there was no one there I could do whatever I wanted to do and that was such a such a gift and then the book was published and it was a kind of a minor success in Norway and then I couldn't write you know then I was only thinking about how would this look how do I look now what should I do what would I think you know and I was dead as a writer for five years. I just couldn't, it wasn't any good, you know. And then for me, my struggle was a kind of a way of making, nihilate that completely, you know, that absolutely 100%. I can't think of what people are thinking. And if I did, I would never have written this book, you know. People were expecting, you know, a new novel and something like my struggle, and this is completely different. And I can't really afford to care, you know, I have to do just what I want to do and, and this book was exactly the same, I just wrote a page, sent it to my editor, wrote another page, you know, and that's what I'm trying to do, <laughs> just to be free and just to write and, and see what happens, you know, and then if you do that, maybe you come into something very intense and interesting in five years and then you leave it and then maybe, you know, I learned very much from a Norwegian painter called Edvard Munch, he was, um, I did curate an exhibition uh, in Oslo, and it's still up, really. You can go see it. And his life was very interesting because he had he had this uh, breakthrough as a painter, very personal, uh, very idiosyncratic, but also very private. You know, in the eighteen nineties, and he was hailed as a as a European master. And then he just left everything behind, and he painted every day throughout the rest of his life. And I think he lived like. For s 50 more years, you know, and he removed ambition, he removed everything, he was just painting, he was just in in that process, you know, and when I see those paintings, I see, well, maybe the quality in that painting isn't good, and maybe not in that painting, but if you see the whole, you know, the whole process, it is fantastic, it is like being inside Marcel Proust, you know, this, the whole life, the whole, the whole world, and that's this kind of, it's not an excuse, but it's my approach to writing to, you know, uh, I'm not doing it for anyone. I'm, I'm doing it <laughs> because I'm curious and because of a way of living and it is a way of, of connecting to the world. And I'm so happy that publisher want to publish it, but that's not, that's not the thing, you know. So this is, is, uh, is about me and it's about my world and it's about things and, and, and that's it. Then, 
all people's life are about, you know, being there, the things there. It's like it is. I can't. I, before I wanted to, you know, to write something great and big, and but I can't find it. I can't see it anywhere. I can't see greatness <laughs> any place. I see only people, and I see, you know, small things and mistakes and and awkward situations, and 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 that's where the greatness is, you know, somehow. Yeah. Um. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> one one of the things you've mentioned a lot of writers and thinkers and artists during this talk, and um, as we're in a bookstore, I, I wanted to just talk about Madame Bovary, which is which is uh, a novel that you mentioned. Um, you say it's the world's greatest novel. There's no doubt in my mind. It has a sharpness, a crystal clear feeling of physical space and materiality, which no novel either before or after it has ever come close to matching. I really, first of all, liked that description of Flaubert. I'm not sure I agree, but I think I understand what you mean. Yeah. And second of all, I, I wonder if that is something that you're aiming for when you yourself are writing. Um, it is kind of an, an ideal, I think, for me. It's, it's, it is like perfect novel, you know, um, and I have tried, but it, it, is, um, it is not in my kind of nature as a writer, I think. Um, but the interesting thing with Flaubert is that he had all these letters that he wrote, you know, it's very intense and very lively and a lot of people and, and it, is, it is great, you know. Uh, but it's like being backstage and then Madame Bovary is, is a distillation of all of that and that distillation is, you know, probably the highest you can you can get as a when I read things it is it is like that. But then again I like, you know, a dirty um bad novel like Dostoevsky did or or, you know, where where there's no that kind of beauty doesn't exist, but there is an diff kind of different energy and intensity to it. But as um as a novel, if you think the perfect novel, that I think would be it, and it's uh, and it's so sharp, you know, in the details and in, in the colors, and it's like it's so fresh and sharp, and, and 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 it has this great, great, great story, which you could is about so many things, you know, it is like it is, um, yeah, it is. <laughs> Some novels have that, you know, Moby Dick has that. It's very, very different, but but it is like you could, you could take out so many things from just. The whale and, and and Captain Ahab and, and it's the same with the story of, of Madame Bovary. It is uh, and it's so much about our time also, and it is about you know fiction and real life and that's the story in Cervantes. The first novel is the same story more or less. Don Quixote and, and Madame Bovary is the same story and and yeah, I find it just just very good and it was so such a pleasure to write one page about it and just say this is the best novel you know it's, <laughs> just, it's a great thing to do i'm not I at university i, like I don't boldness. have to you know yeah <laughs> I, I like that you just put your opinion out there and um yeah and and for me the pleasure is reading what you have to say about it even if maybe that's not what True. truth is <laughs> yeah. um i wanted to just end by asking you um about something we love very much here in Britain, which is football, um, which I know you're a big fan of. And, and I read something you wrote the other day when you said, it means nothing and that's very important. There's no meaning you can extract from it. It's just fun. So can you talk a little bit about your relationship with football and, and why that is important, that it means nothing? And if you really meant that. <laughs> um. You know, I wrote a book about football with a friend. It is really about the World Cup in Brazil, and he was there, and I was at home, and we watched the same games, and and we discussed our lives and and life in general, and we came back to football, and we left it. We come back and left it. And what I wanted to avoid was like saying football is like art, football is like literature, football is like you know, it isn't. It is football. It is you know very simple, and it is that's the joy. There's no meaning attached to it. It's just about game it's just about disappearing to it N and that it is what it is it is about disappearing you know it is uh, I watched uh, a week ago I watched with my son and a friend uh, a game in Sweden and it's seventh division is lowest division and they are at the bottom place in the lowest division so this is the you know the worst football you could you could watch in Sweden 
And it was brilliant, you know, it was it was so interesting because football is always interesting because it is about, you know, human interactions and you you can never know what's going to happen. There's a lot of challenges, a lot of things to see and watch and it's just very interesting. But you can't take it out. You can't take it out because you know, no, it's yeah, at we didn't even try to do that, you know. We we just kept it there. But it is uh, it is very joyful, and the only thing I could think of that is the same is playing football is is um, about presence and a presence so concentrated that you can't think. If you think, then you are you you can't play. You know, you have no time to think. And the whole thing is that you shouldn't think. You should just do. You know. So it's it's flow, and that is the same with writing. You can't really think. If you think you're dead, it's all about flow. You know, it is all about being there without being self-aware. And in that book uh, about the brain, uh, he writes about flow, what flow is. You know, and that's also very interesting because it is they have uh, they did research on on people who climbed on mountains. But it's the same, exactly the same thing, you know, you know you lose a sense of self. And what happens is that it's shut down in the front here. So where the ability to think abstract is, the ability to plan for the future is, and the awareness of self is. And that is all that makes us human, it's here. And when it's flow, it's like it is shutting down and you are, where are you? You are in the world, you are connected to the world, you know. It's like you are almost like an animal, but you are not, you are human, but, but you are connected in a completely different way. And I think, you know, religious ecstasy, um, the, the joy you can have when you see a painting or read a book is, is that, and that's what you feel, you feel connected. And that's just because you have no self anymore. And that's also the same thing in football. It's <laughs> that's where you get it, you know. So it is meaningful. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> no, I, I I think that's um, all of us have probably felt that feeling in some sense or the other when you're yeah. completely disconnected, and there are so many different ways to find it. Um, so, thank you, Carlo Benafar. That was wonderful. That was Carl Ovenausgaard talking about his book, Autumn. And inspired by Autumn, we are going to be talking about the everyday in literature, which I tended to write a lot of essays about in college. It's a theme that seems to attract me. I don't know what that means. It's, it's interesting because it's a theme that really repels me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're fodder for uh, our chat. But um, the literary friction. Maybe I'm ordinary. Say. No, you're not ordinary. Thanks, Octavia. Come on, babe. Okay, so... I recently came across a term that I really do not like how it sounds, but I love the idea of it. Um, astronomy. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. It's a terrible term, but um, it, it basically means defamiliarization. And it was coined by a Russian formalist called Viktor Shlovsky, who believed that art functions to make the habitual and ordinary strange again, which I think... It's a really interesting idea. He pointed to a passage in Tolstoy's War and Peace, your favorite book, mm -hmm. in which um, Tolstoy describes the opera as painted cardboard and oddly dressed men and women who moved, spoke and sang strangely in a patch of blazing light. And I, I really, I don't know if this idea is true, but I really like the idea of art being a means through which we can experience the everyday and the habitual as new again and take wonder in things again. And I think Navsgaard was kind of getting at that in his book um, and in his comments in the interview as well in terms of how he wrote about literature. Do you think Do you think that's true of art? I think it is. I also think it's very dangerous to generalize about what art does because art does so many different things and that's why it's art and that's why it's wonderful. But I definitely think this is one mechanism, yes. Um, and that that example from War and Peace is perfect. I think Nausgaard aims to do that. I'm not sure personally how successful I think he is at it because I didn't find that many revelations in that book. Um, I found a lot of, he was noticing things a lot, 
but for me there wasn't that much making things strange whereas I think Tolstoy is brilliant at that because I don't know I think that the the idea this <laughs> I was going to say Schlocky which is not his name Schlovsky <laughs> <laughs> poor old Schlovsky um it's interesting this idea about taking the habitual and making it strange again I would say that's almost that makes me think of magical realism in in mm, some ways mm. that actually takes me away from this idea of the quotidian and the mundane in literature and takes me much further towards something that's really abstracting something um but maybe that's just where I take it and run with it too um I think that idea of of finding a way to see things as if for the first time again is really exciting when you come across that in any art form, whether it's painting or film or, or, or literature. I also think it's quite rare to, that it's done successfully. Yeah, I think that's true. But I also think, I like to think about art as aiming to do something rather than accomplishing it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Also, you know, the, the thing we can't avoid is talking about perspective and viewpoints. And particularly with writing and novels and essays, you're entering into the viewpoint of the writer or the character that the writer has created. So you are seeing the world through somebody else's eyes, which means you're going to see it for the first time because you've never looked through their eyes before. Yeah, and that's what the whole My Struggle series is about, is is living someone's life literally alongside them yeah. as they trudge through the snow to their friend's, you know, party and try to buy booze or they go to a birthday party or, you know, and and that's what's, interesting about it I think is living the boring bits of life I mm. feel I feel like literature doesn't often engage with with boringness um David Foster Wallace I'm mentioning a lot of dudes dudes here um funny, funny that <laughs> um was really interested in boredom as well and tried to write a book about it which I think was was unsuccessful partially because of course it was never finished and published posthumously Posthumously? Posthumously. <laughs> Posthumously. Yeah, you can do it. Um, <laughs> called The Pale King. But, um, yeah, it's... I, yeah, I, I think there have been... Well, there have been movements in literature, of course, that have been very engaged with this. Um, I mentioned in my interview Martianism, which was a very minor movement in British poetry <laughs> led by people like Craig Rain. Um, which was all about aliens, literally aliens coming down to Earth and and reconceive and thinking about how we they would see the Earth through their eyes. There's also the realist tradition, which I don't think would say that it's about making the mundane new again or interesting again, but it is about depicting life, trying to depict life as we experience it and as we see it. Um, and, you know, plenty of novelists have done that from, you know, Flaubert to Elizabeth Strout, who's a, who we're a big fan of, to yeah, big fan. Virginia Woolf. Yeah, uh, the thing is, it's interesting because actually I don't, I find the mundane in daily life like trying and painful anyway. And so rarely do I want to enter it into it in literature. The kind of thing that I'm looking for from literature tends to be transcendence in some way and writing about the mundane I don't find it transcendent however I do find Virginia Woolf transcendent and I do find Elizabeth Strout transcendent because I find the realities they're representing and the ways in which they're doing it really really speak to me um, but then there are a lot of realist novelists who I don't find transcendent and I guess that's when it comes down to a question of taste and the thing is it's important to acknowledge that also to write about the mundane, there's some luxury in that. Mm. Like if you don't have any other struggle that really needs your attention and you can just write about walking in the snow and you know, the, 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 imp the impetus to write, you're freed from a lot of the kind of more painful impetus. Just, I'm not make, making myself very no, clear. No, 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 I know, I know what you mean. And also something that he said during the interview was my, you know, everything is in the world directly around me. And that's actually a very privileged thing to say. Absolutely. Isn't it? And it um, it's a very true. isolated thing yeah. to say. Yeah. And I understand I understand the impulse behind it. And I think there is some truth to, you know, we all live in, in microcosms of the larger world. But I think, you know, autumn is shutting itself off to a lot of experiences and ideas and things that aren't immediately accessible to him. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe realism in, in a lot of ways is 
guilty of that. Yeah, it's definitely one of its very clear limitations, isn't it? Um, and that's just something to be aware of, I think, when you pick up a book like that and, and you enter into it. But then uh, again, with literature, we always, when we talk about books, we always come back to this question of, you know, should there be parameters placed on writers? Should there be parameters placed on readers? There's no such thing as a book that shouldn't be written. It's just, what do you choose to pick up as a reader? Yeah. Um, and so thinking about this theme was interesting for me because it really made me consider my own, you know, my own um, taste as a reader. And I'm not drawn towards these kind of texts. And I find reading them often difficult because they challenge um, me. Do you know what I mean? That there is something about sitting down and reading about the mundanity of life and the everyday that maybe some people find very comforting. I personally find it very challenging. Yes. Well, as as an enjoyer of the mundane, as you might conceive of it, I don't think it's about comfort. I think it's a, exactly what you were saying about um, finding something transcendent in something so quotidian. And I think my favorite novels are about norm, quote unquote normal people who, if you crack open the surface of their lives, there's something transcendent in all of us. Mm -hmm. And I, I suppose that idea is comforting to me. Yeah. That transcendence can be found in anything. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful idea. I find it sentimental. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But not not untrue. We're you know? running out of time and we haven't even give our, given our recommendations. Okay, for quickly, our favorite go, books. go, go, go. Okay, so, oh, yes. So this is a really boring recommendation and it's really obvious, but I'm just going to give it anyway because I've been thinking about this book a lot recently. Um, and it's Middle March by George Eliot. It's a great book. I found this novel very difficult to read when I read it. I have this very clear memory of going to visit my friend Morgan's parents in the Adirondacks for the weekend and sitting like next to the fire trying to read Middlemarch and literally falling asleep <laughs> as, as I read it. It was, <laughs> it was hard. But um, I think about it all the time. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful book and sort of does contain the world within it. And, um, of course, George Eliot is writing about this town, Middlemarch, which becomes a sort of microcosm of the rest of the world. Um, and what I really love about it is that through its protagonist, Dorothea Brooke, um, it also becomes an argument for exactly what I was just talking about, why the ordinary is so important and inseparable from the good and the extraordinary. And the last paragraph of the novel, um, you may have heard at somebody's funeral, but it is it is really wonderful, and there's a reason why it gets read. Um, and I'm just going to read it now. Her finely touched spirit had still its fine issues, though they were not widely visible. Her full nature, like the river of which Cyrus broke the strength, spent itself in channels which had no great name on the earth. But the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who live faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. It's very beautiful. It's and very you read wonderful. It very beautifully. Well, I also, the way I copied and pasted it, a lot of the words like um, went on to the next line, and <laughs> it's really <laughs> difficult, so that took a lot of concentration. Um, and in addition to my recommendation, I would also recommend reading an article in the Paris Review from 2013 by the novelist Pamela Ahrens um, called It Can Be Embarrassing to Love Dorothea, um, which makes a compelling case for why Dorothea is such a great female protagonist and why in her striving for goodness, she's so exasperating to so many people. And I think is getting at that idea of what you think is sentimental, I think is transcendent. Um, so you should read it. I will. It sounds great. Um, my recommendation is is kind of a perfect balance for that. Um, it's called The Practice of Everyday Life by Michel de Sarto. <laughs> <laughs> it's theory. Um, it was originally published in French as L'Invention du Quotidien, um, Volume 1, Art de Faire. And it was published in 1980, published in English in 1984, Stephen Randall's translation. And it's absolutely brilliant. And it is a transcendent piece of criticism. It was really, really influential in the writing of a lot of... Um, a lot of authors of all different kinds. Uh, it's dedicated to the ordinary man, but it is about making the everyday 
transcended by acknowledging the politics at play in everything mm, that we do mm. and reminding the individual that the individual does actually have all power if only they learn how to harness it. There's a really famous and incredibly beautiful passage about um, walking and walking in a city as a form of speaking and as a form of articulation. Um, and how walking in itself can be a rhetorical act. Walking in itself is an act of learning if you do it actively and, and with attention. Um, so he makes the mundane fascinating by theorizing what's happening in it. But it's not like a lot of theory that's very, very hard to read and hard to get into. He writes beautifully, I think. Um, and he talks about the erotics of knowledge, the ecstasy of reading the cosmos, the allure of knowing things. So it's this amazing uh, kind of philosophy around why we want to create texts about things. Why do we try to understand our daily lives? Why this drive to write about the quotidian? What is the actual act of that? What is that as a philosophical thing? Um, which I find really beautiful, but it's, it's also fundamentally very subversive because he's saying everything that you do in your daily life without thinking, all these unthinking acts actually have great significance mm. if you stop and try and understand what's going on there. Um, so I think it's a wonderful text to read as a reader, because it makes you think about what you're consuming in other kinds of literature that you're into, novels and poetry and all the rest. And it's beautiful. And you won't walk around a city in the same way after reading it. I never came across that in all of my essays about the everyday. He, he, it's interesting. I think he became, I think he became quite untrendy for a little bit of time yeah. along the way. Everything is political, though. I think oh, that's right. And absolutely. I think that when we're talking about the everyday, we have to talk about the politics behind that. Absolutely. And like we, you know, I, we could do a whole show on that. Yeah. You know how I feel about that. Yes, <laughs> I do. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll be back in a minute with our book recommendations this month. Okay, so those were our recommendations about the everyday. Now let's go on to our regular recommendations, which may or may not have to do with the everyday. And also, um, sadly, Carl Ovenaskar could not be here to give his recommendation, although I think we can safely say that it might be Madame Bovary. I mean, I don't know why you would think that. What's your recommendation? I think that was very bad sarcasm, wasn't it? <laughs> Madame Bovary is also not one of my favorite books, so no. I'm, I'm being scathing. Um, my She's been talking shit. About Madame Bovary. Shit about Madame Bovary. What a bitch. Yeah. And I say that I believe in sisterhood, but really, that lady. She's pretty whiny. She needed to get over herself. Yeah. I'm just going to say that for free. Okay. My recommendation is Marlena by Julie Bunton, which I just uh, read this summer. And I really, really enjoyed it. It's, I read it very quickly. Um, it was kind of the perfect holiday read. It's her debut novel. Um, she's got a really great voice, really readable, really relatable. Um, and I was going to say, you know, it's really light and great. And then when I was writing this um, blurb about it, I realized it's not really light at all. <laughs> it's about, um, well, there's a narrative about addiction. And you find out right at the beginning that Marlena dies um, early on in the in the narrative. So it's not that light. But compared to the other stuff that I've been reading lately, it felt really light. Um, because it's about friendship and it's narrated by Kat retrospectively who's now in her 30s living in Brooklyn so she's living a very contemporary life but she's looking at how um, various things that happened when she was a teenager living in rural Michigan um, with her mum and her brother and then she makes friends with Marlena who's a local girl um, and how that friendship impacts on her development as she grows older but it's just I don't know it's just a great it's a great read I think that Julie Bunton, I would definitely look forward to reading whatever she writes next. I think her voice has got a little bit of maturing to do. Um, but I love that too, when you find a new voice and you're excited by them and you can't wait to see what they do next. I felt like that about Sarah Taylor as well. Yeah. You know? Yeah, um, me too. And yeah, I, I, I just think it's a, I think it's a great book and it it's a satisfying read, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, and I am going to recommend a book that I actually feel very similarly about and is also by a um, female American novelist. So not great diversity in our choices this month, but I'm just going to plow on ahead. Do it, babe. Um, so last month, as you may remember, I recommended State of Wonder by Ann Patchett. I do remember. Which I'd only just started reading and subsequently finished and really like. Well, this month, I'm going to recommend another book by Ann Patchett. You're such a fan, I girl. know. I really am. Um, and it's a little boring, but it really is the book I liked most that I read last month. So I think I have to be true to my taste. Definitely. Um, 
So this book is completely different from State of Wonder. Um, the latter was set in the Brazilian jungle. Commonwealth is the story of a family in Virginia and how their lives are changed by one sort of fateful day in their lives. Now that sounds like the plot of every book read by every book club anywhere ever, which it actually was a book that my book club read. I I've love never my book been club. in a book club. I oh. don't know. <laughs> you, we had a feminist book club for like two weeks. Oh, we did. Do you remember I that? <laughs> in my kitchen. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It and I kept banging on about <laughs> Judith Butler and everyone yeah. was like, this is too intense. And I couldn't understand <laughs> Judith Butler. <laughs> I failed your feminist book group. Well, my I, I failed <laughs> at the book group. Well, anyway, I have a much more successful book group now, but much less... Um, Sorry, no, that sounds really mean. <laughs> no, I honestly, I don't. It's I'm less serious. Offended. We mainly yeah. just talk about our lives. That's but we do also read great books, including Commonwealth by Ann Patchett. I've gone a little off-piste. I know, that was a um, great segue back. But I, I think what makes this book is just a page turner. And it's not an empty page turner. It's a very psychologically complex page turner about people and how they relate to each other and live lives. <laughs> And love. I've been told I need to wrap it up. Anyway, I had a very brilliant experience of reading this where my poor husband, Eddie, was like roasting marshmallows by the fire in our romantic camping getaway. And I was literally reading the book by the firelight, like <laughs> pressing my face against the pages just so I could find out what happens to this family. And Ann Patchett has a gift for making me completely interested in characters and wanting to spend time with them. And she I think that's great. the mark of a great novelist. Definitely. So I'd really recommend her. I think she's overlooked in some ways too. I think she's marketed as um, sort of a chiclet author, which she is not, even though she's writing about families. I mean, Carl Evan Asgard writes about families. And exactly. He's not a chicklet. Yes. Author. Yes. Very good point. Um, so that's my recommendation. And I and I can't wait for everyone to read it. <laughs> now I'm going to do the outroduction. <laughs> that's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Carl Evan Asgard, Rosie Beaumont Thomas at Waterstones Tottenham Court Road for letting us record the interview and to Eddie Knight for production and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and on nts.live. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Please say hi. We really love to hear from you all. We really do. And we will be back in a month. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright and this is Literary Friction.